Well, good afternoon, and welcome to Ask Me Anything About Employment with Laverne Miller. My name is David Blair, and I'll be your moderator today. Uh, this webinar is not a presentation, but an interactive question and answer period. And for the next hour, Laverne will take any questions you have related to uh, employment. Uh, Laverne is a senior project associate at Policy Research Associates and has over 20 years of leadership experience in transforming behavioral health systems and integrating individuals with lived experience into programs planning, implementation, service delivery, and evaluation. She leads peer-focused activities at SAMHSA's GAIN Center for Behavioral Health and Justice Trans uh, Transformation. Uh, Ms. Miller provides technical assistance to programs to improve recruiting, hiring, integrating, and advancing peer staff. She has also provided technical assistance to mental health transformation products, including programs with peer staff, providing evidence-based practices such as supported employment, supportive housing, supported education, critical time intervention, and trauma-informed care. Ms. Milner is the former director of the internationally recognized Howie the Heart Peer Advocacy Center in New York. Uh, in this role, she developed the first training program to prepare justice-involved peers to work in criminal justice settings. She has developed curricula and an internship program to prepare graduates to work in the human services as peers and in and other roles. A member of the New York State Bar, Ms. Miller has worked as Assistant District, District Attorney in New York County and has an attorney and community organizer with Jamaica Housing Improvement. Today's event is jointly funded by the National Institute on Disability, Independent Living and Rehabilitation Research and the Center for Mental Health Services within the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. The content of this webinar does not represent the views or policies of the funding agencies, and you should not assume endorsement by the federal government. Uh, with that, welcome to the webinar, and I hope everyone enjoys the next hour, and welcome, Laverne. How, how are you doing? Hi. Yeah, good afternoon from uh, New York State. Uh, I just want to welcome everyone. I just, uh, and David and your team, really thank you for the opportunity to really talk about uh, justice-involved peers and really to um, you know, identify some of the challenges that they, not only they experience, but also the uh, individuals, the organizations that wish to hire them. Um, for those on the call, you know, this call is timely. I think we're all looking at um, the implications for uh, involvement in the criminal justice system and what those of us that are really committed and really believe that employment is part of the recovery process is how, uh, you know, we can make that happen. I hope you'll find today's uh, discussion helpful. Uh, you know, we're going to have a little fun and some interaction, and I really hope that we're able to answer uh, most, if not all, of your questions. Uh, so, uh, David? All right. Well, you know, I, I think given that little introduction you have, uh, the first time the question for you is from Joan. Uh, and Joan asks, what can individuals do who want to work to find out what their actual record says? And, and okay. can any parts of their record be expunged? That's a wonderful question, and I think it really has to do – some of the uh, issues have to deal with the state that you're in, and, and I, you know, that is, uh, you know, very state-specific, and I would – you know, there's a uh, – in, in the chat box, I'm going to put some resources in a moment, but there are two, uh, two organizations, the Council for State Governments and the uh, 
the legal action center that really do a really a walkthrough about uh, criminal justice convictions and the kind of impact that it has. Um, your question about expungement, expungement is uh, a state, again a state specific issue. And so the best place to find that kind of information, what I found with most states is really to contact your state attorney general's office and they should have information uh, that's uh, that's available and timely um, on that particular issue. And for the other part of your question, I think it's, um, you know, we, we uh, unfortunately, um, individuals with criminal justice histories, um, there are some collateral consequences. Uh, again, it's state-specific, and uh, those resources will help you identify what sorts of um, employment or what other kinds of what we call, you know, call some of the rights of citizenship um, that may, you know, that you may temporarily lose either during, you know, following a conviction. But I really want to recommend to everyone and is, uh, you know, if you're you have a criminal justice history, uh, that you go, you your state attorney generals or your state department of state or your criminal justice agency will be able to give you a copy, an official copy of your what we call your rap sheet. Uh, it's important that if many of us don't have funds. And generally, with these with um, state agencies, there's a waiver process, or there are often state agencies, often agencies like Legal Aid Society or consumer-run programs that can help you pay the fee. I would recommend that you scrutinize your rap sheet because often there are errors. You may see warrants or convictions um, that you, that didn't happen, and so you know to really thoroughly review it and uh, you know take whatever action may need to be taken to correct it. it takes time. To do it, so it's not going to happen overnight. But really, what I would really recommend is that um, you, you you scrutinize it. The other thing is, most states have something that's called a a certificate of re relief for disabilities, and that really means that some of your rights that you may lose as virtue by virtue of a criminal conviction that those state that those rights can be restored, and you can actually go before court and request that on your own. You know, during during that answer, you you said that. It takes a while. What what type of timeline are we looking at? Is it weeks, months, well, years? I think it, I think it depends. You know, it it really if you're able to get um, work with an agency, an advocacy agency that's familiar with working with individuals with criminal justice histories, often they're familiar with what kind of information. You know, uh, you know the process and how long it may take. I think it ranges uh, depending upon. Things like where the records are stored. Some, you know, most states now are computerized, but uh, you know, some of records, for example, haven't been computerized, and so that someone's got to go back and, um, you know, look at look at some of the other information. But it really ranges. Uh, I think the most important thing is that uh, you have someone help you scrutinize with some criminal, you know, some criminal justice experience. They don't have to be a lawyer, but you really look carefully at their criminal justice history when you obtain it. And often there's a way to really request an expedited copy in many jurisdictions, and that may be because you're applying for a job position. Be you know, so be mindful of those exceptions to kind of timelines that we always see. Thank you. And you know, you mentioned the organization, um, the Council for State Government. It's uh, www.csg.org. So that that's how you can get absolutely. Uh, so I'll I'll go ahead and go on to the next question. So the second person uh, is from Massachusetts, and I, I'm apologizing if I if I pronounce this wrong, but it's Obida, 
and they are a peer engagement specialist. And they ask, how do you explain your uh, quote unquote criminal justice experience at a mm. state position interview? Okay, I think, you know, the one thing about it I want to encourage everyone is don't be ashamed of that experience. Often there are, uh, you know, you've been able to take classes, there are other kinds of activities that you've been able to engage in um, despite your criminal justice history. So my suggestion is really, number one, is to be familiar with the state. Often states have um, restrictions on, for example, uh, someone who can be employed, you know, what kinds of convictions. So it's really important to know, for example, whether a person with a felony um, can, you know, is, is uh, has there's some restrictions on their employment, or a person with a misdemeanor, and that really means, as legal terms, a misdemeanor is something that a crime where you're sentenced generally to jail, and it can be a, a year or less, and felonies generally you're um, uh, sent to state prison, and uh, you can it's really one year or more. My often states, and this is the wonderful thing that we're really seeing, is that they're building in exceptions. That if you're able to demonstrate that you're rehabilitated, that you've participated in the community, all those great things that I know many of you have done um, since you've been maybe released from jail or prison, that it's often important to um, point those things out. And should you get an interview, you can, you, you should, I think you, you talk about, um, you know, that what you've learned the skills that you have, uh, that, you know, you, you, you um, matured or whatever the situation may be. But most importantly, um, don't be ashamed. You know, the, you know, basically, you know, those are parts of it. We know certain folks get involved in the criminal justice system, um, sometimes through no fault of their own. And it's really important um, that you be able to be your best advocate. You know, in my own experience, just when I'm trying to do things, it's finding the right words to use to describe it. You know, so if, if I was interviewing you and I said, you know, Laverne, I see that you mark that you have a uh, criminal justice record. Can mm -hmm. you tell me about that? What words would you use to, to describe that? Yeah. I mean, first, the first thing is really to make sure what the law is in your state. Um, because one thing that I find, it's illegal on any application to ask about an arrest. And I think all of you should know that. Um, to really, you know, understand, to really look at the application and what kinds of convictions um, that you have to write about, uh, you know, on your, truthfully, uh, on your application, but also for those jobs where you have to get some sort of clearance to really um, understand what, you know, that, again, that um, criminal justice record should indicate. I think it's about, David, it's about saying, you know, I'm really enthusiastic about um, meeting you. I've got skills and talents that um, I think will be an asset. There was a point in my life where I got involved in uh, activities that um, you know that I'm not particularly proud of, but since that time, I've done everything that I can to um, you know to do well and to be an active and uh, engaged uh, citizen. And I really look forward to having an opportunity. I think I'd be an asset. Not I think I know I would be an asset, and really. You know what? I think you know. I'd like to have a chance. I'd like to have a chance to uh, demonstrate that to you. you know? and I think it's really about using positive language, not being ashamed, not and 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 really avoiding not telling the truth, which is what I find some people do, but really to be able to you know say that basically you've accomplished a lot, and that you deserve an opportunity. Sure. Thank, thank you for that. So moving to the next question, Kathleen, and this is a longer one, so I'm going to go a little slow. Okay, I Kathleen, got it. Kathleen says, I have a situation 
in which two peer-run agencies staff six supported housing agencies with peer specialists. So two peer agencies with six supported housing agencies. The peer specialist work, that, which is to begin soon, is to provide information and support for individuals interested in moving into supported housing. And the question is, how can I ensure consistent service provision across peer specialists who must work within two different peer-run agency mm -hmm. cultures, as well as within the different cultures of the support uh, supported housing agencies? So there's a lot going on there. So if you, if you need, yeah, I mean, I think that. I think that's a wonderful question, and I think it's really important. What I would really recommend is meeting with the supervisors of each program and really getting an idea of what sorts of differences they may be, and also to identify what sorts of training uh, peers uh, may need in order to, um, to perform the essential job functions well. I think notwithstanding that there may be different expectations regarding each employer, maybe different rules around vacation, around what have you. The peers from both programs really should meet on a regular basis to provide, we all know that peer support is the best kind of support, um, to really talk about their challenges, to brainstorm solutions um, and the like, to really be an asset to each other. I, you know, and it, it's really, you know, where you have, um, so I think it's really important to identify those common Things that folk, you know, peers have, you know, regardless of where they're working, that issue about choice, a life in the, you know, life in the community, um, that peers providing services need to be must be transparent, and those are values and principles that are really important to each um, program. And I would prepare a training for both agencies, recommending that the supervisors and other key staff attend it, and really educate folks around what we, you know, what recovery is. What kinds of activities really promote recovery? What kind of supervision peers um, need in order to succeed? And really to answer any questions that they have, um, because often folks don't know it, don't know it because they don't know it. And so, really, uh, it's really incumbent upon us many times to uh, be the uh, the the educator around um, you know the values of peer support. Finally. <clears throat> You know, cultures are hard to change. They're very, it's sort of, I often say it's like turning a ship in an ocean. Um, you know, it takes a long time. Or when you see a tugboat bringing a um, a cruise ship in, and it's like, when is that ship going to, you know, dock? But change is, uh, and often it's incremental. You know, it doesn't happen overnight. But I really would recommend that you, you know, you, you develop a training for both the peers as well as the supervisors and other key staff and you look at policies and practices for both programs that promote um, the uh, recruitment, the hiring, uh, you know, of, of, of the, the, you know, the peer staff, um, that there are opportunities for career advancement, and that they, uh, one other thing is really looking at, this is something that I found, is we don't typically uh, exercise our rights under the American with Disabilities Act, and I don't know how many of you know that, but um, it's really, you know, it is. It, it gives an individual um, with a disability and mental illness is one of them, um, really a right to have a reasonable accommodation, so long that as it doesn't disrupt the business. Um, so it's really important, again, that you know, as you're training and providing support to the peers as well as um, the key staff, is that you educate everyone about what a reasonable accommodation is. And one of the other things, thank you, Mr. Cooler that you know, folks need to understand is that there's really this watershed 
which is fantastic, of reform around criminal justice. And many states like Massachusetts or cities like New York City have done what we call ban the box. And that means no question can be asked about your conviction until after you've been offered the position. And um, if anyone wants, I have a question. Why do you think that's important? Why is that a policy um, that's real critical to providing opportunities for uh, those of us with criminal justice histories? That's a question to the group. (laughs) We're going to get lively today. I'll just say why it's really important. Because you want a person to interview you, not viewing you through a prism of your criminal justice history. You want someone to really look at your qualities, your interpersonal skills, your work experience, and the like. And it really, what it's intended to do is to eliminate discrimination against uh, our brothers and sisters who have criminal justice records. One of the challenges with states or localities that have implemented this is really there's very little enforcement. And we all know if if your rights are violated uh, and there's no enforcement mechanism, in other words, there's no place where you can go um, to complain that an employer asked you about your criminal justice record before uh, you were hired, um, it's a challenge. So I would say rights without what we call in the legal profession due process, you know, makes it really challenging. But again, um, mostly all 50 states are engaging in some type of reform around uh, how criminal justice records can be considered. Yeah, and uh, Mr. Kugler said that you said it better than he could have. <laughs> no, I didn't, Mr. Kruger. But that thanks, I didn't. But thanks for bringing that up because that's key. You know, it's really important that those of us that have criminal justice records don't walk around with that scarlet letter, that A, or you know, in this case, it would be a C, that lets everyone know that you know we're we have a criminal justice history when that's just maybe a small part of our lives. Uh, you know, in in the answer to Kathleen's question, you talked a lot about what leads to success. Is, is there anything that jumps out in your mind of things that lead to failure? Uh, of yeah, yeah, I do. I mean, I think one of the most important things um, is that, you know, often um, people feel shame. And we all know that when you feel ashamed, you, you're unable to really advocate for yourself. You set low expectations for yourself with respect to employment, and you don't really have a hope for the future. So I think when people feel shame, uh, it's in a, it, it has a negative impact. The lack of family support. For many of us, as we transition to employment, um, particularly if we um, have, have both a mental health uh, condition as well as a criminal justice history, we need family support. We need cheerleaders. Um, and if you don't have family support, that can often be um, a negative. The other thing that really impacts negatively on many folks in terms of transitioning to employment is a lot of the misinformation that's out there around um, benefits like Social Security, um, uh, SSI, and uh, Social Security Disability Insurance. So I think, you know, that's another thing that can lead to failure, not really being aware of what the impact of work can have upon those benefits. Um, the other thing I, I think is, you know, that what I've seen is really understanding that a job is a job. You know, and that it's really important that notwithstanding some of the challenges we all experience, that you take your responsibilities very seriously and that you, to the best of your ability, you perform 
you know, your job. And if you need a reasonable accommodation, a change in schedule, that you'll be able to, um, you know, to, to uh, do that. Because my experience is that people often, like, abandon their jobs, you know, when something bad happens. Because all it does is reinforce to us where nothing, you know, that, that, that um, what I call that record playing in your mind. And so it's very, very important to put on another record to take that old record off and to view yourself as a, uh, you know, uh, create what I call a new narrative for you. And finally, it's really having a network, you know, really taking advantage. I often meet peers, uh, people with criminal justice histories that, you know, are really afraid about networking with um, other people. You know, we feel very comfortable in our space networking with, um, you know, people that have our shared experience. I want to encourage all of you um, that there's a big white world out there of people, everybody has problems, and that there are folks that are, can be mentors, can support you and your, your goals, can be your cheerleaders, and they don't have to, have, they don't have to share the same experiences that you have, um, you know, and, and really take advantage of that. And, you know, Stephen uh, in the room just says, I'm ashamed of my past forensic history, but I am not my past. I am nothing what my offense was, and I've had 15 years since mm-hmm. that I have proven myself. And I think that's that wonderful. the sentiment you're getting to. Yeah, I think that's wonderful. It's all about your attitude. It's all about feeling basically that you deserve all the rights and privileges that any other, any other citizen in this country has. And that, you know, one of the most important things is not to give up. Don't ever give up. But also, um, you know, take advantage of the support that peer organizations and other organizations can provide as you embark upon this journey. Because like anyone, you know, when you're looking for a job, nowadays it's on the web, you don't get a letter, you don't know. It's a really, I would say, it's really important to have support as you go through the process. Um, Switching to a different question now, Jennifer uh, writes in and says, how does the disclosure of a mental health condition Um, differ from hiring any other qualified employee? I I struggle to see the difference. Yeah, I think, you know, um, it's, it's, it's a difference without a difference. One of the challenges is that in order to be eligible for reasonable accommodation, you have to disclose that information. And one of the things that's really important is that information doesn't, when you go to the human resources office or whatever, part of the, um, you know, the, the uh, employer that really handles a reasonable accommodation, um, that your records are not, not um, they say they're safe, they're supposed to be secured in the HR office, and no one has access to them. Um, and, if, you know, and I would say it's really important that type of privacy is really critical. So I, re- I recommend always that, if, you know, to not wait till there's a performance issue before you talk to your supervisor about needing a reasonable accommodation and that uh, it's, uh, you know, and that you really, you know, speak with uh, human resources about what you need. I also think that it's important as uh, we as people with lived experience, <clears throat> I say, you know, you, you have to be careful about disclosure. Your disclosure, what you disclose to whom and how you talk about it is really important. And you can utilize your supervisor or other colleagues and kind of saying, well, what do you think? What what do you think I should say? Because I say, you know, once Pandora's out the box, Pandora's out the box. And sometimes we are so used to being in therapy or seeing psychiatrists that we want to t- tell it all. And I would say a bit of this, a lot a lot of discretion is really important. And so again, in closing, the only difference that it makes is that you're, you know, that you're entitled to a reasonable accommodation. 
Um, and really, and 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 you have a right to one, and you can only get one if you disclose your um, mental health issue. And, you know, I want to bring up something that has been brought up in previous uh, Ask Me Anything sessions mm-hmm. about disclosure, and that's you know how you choose to do it is up to you, and if you do it verbally. You know, make sure to follow it up with a written version too. Absolutely. For trail, uh, mm-hmm. for what's going on with you. You're absolutely right. You're you're absolutely right. Yes. And don't you know the important thing is that when we work, we, we sometimes we kind of say we don't need this. I had the same issue when I went back to work after being hospitalized. I'm like, oh, I don't need to, I don't need to do this. I don't need to do that. I don't need to do this. And I would say it's very important to practice wellness. And that those things have made you healthy, whether it's um, you know uh, your you know your your doctor or a certain activity or what have you, whatever is made you know is important to your overall wellness because it, that it's important that you continue to do that um, once you get a job that we not feel that we're um, you know that uh, we don't need anything and each one of you that's on the phone the 24 folks that are on the phone. You have a good idea, really, what you need in order to stay well. So turning to the next question, this one comes from Stephen in New York, and uh, they ask, is there any organization that helps ex-felons get employment as a peer support specialist? Is there anyone who can help me with resumes and cover letters? I'm someone with a forensic background, and I have no experience with resumes and cover letters. Okay. You're fortunate to live in New York State. And because I say that, because there are several, depending upon where you are living in New York State, there are several programs that train peer specialists, um, peers with criminal justice backgrounds to work, uh, to work. And generally the work is uh, most folks with criminal justice histories are really enthusiastic about working with uh, folks that share our experiences. And so what happens, um, New York State uh you know, there's a what we call it's called the Justice Center, and so it's really a agency that you know once you're printed because most it, in New York uh, you have to you're you know they do a background check that really uh, you know you will the employer has to demonstrate that you're being hired because of your criminal justice history that that's viewed as an asset. You have to demonstrate your um, you know your uh, your that you're doing well in the community. Um, and um, that you, you know, and that I, what I found in my experience in New York State is that it's a very it's a process that gives you every opportunity um, to to gain employment. Uh, I would say that there are there are peer agencies, for example, Howie the Heart Peer Advocacy Center in Harlem. You've got Baltic Street, which is in Brooklyn. Um, you've got lots of uh, peer organizations. So what I would do is really contact. Um, like Howie the Harp, I would recommend that because you know they've done a lot of work around working with people with criminal justice histories, and really just ask the question, you know, what, you know, where is their training program, and because it's really important for folks that are doing peer support work to really be trained. And there are loads and loads of opportunities in New York State to really, whether I'm working with an agent, you know, I work with, for example, a group of folks in Oasis, that's the state alcohol and substance abuse agency. That really is working with every county in New York City for the treatment providers to hire peers to work in the treatment in the treatment courts, the drug you know the drug courts, the mental health courts. So things are changing, uh, and you've got to believe that you know your criminal justice history is not a deficit. In many ways, it's an asset. It's a demonstration of strength, 
that you're a survivor, that you've overcome many, many, many um, barriers, um, and that that whole that experience, rather than rather than being viewed as negative, really has prepared you to work as a peer specialist. Sure, you know, Stephen's saying it's hard. He's out on Long Island, and it's hard for him to travel. Do you know mm-hmm. of anything out there? I do. Yes, it's called my colleague Ellen Helian. It's called Hands Across Hands Across Long Island. Hallie and David, if you could uh, get their website, they do fantastic work in in um, in Long Island, and I would reach out to them. You know, I really would. Uh, they do great work around uh, helping folks uh, with resumes, pe- helping individuals get copies of their rap sheets, employment, clothing. Uh, and housing. They run a housing program, and they also have this wonderful program where they focus on, you know, primary care, your health and wellness. And this is exciting. Hallie's a peer-run organization, and they have a psychiatrist that works for them that really focuses on, you know, recovery-based uh, practices. So it's, you know, you're you're really fortunate in some ways that um, you, you're able, you have access to that wonderful uh, organiz- organization. I want to emphasize this is a this is a peer-run organization that's doing all this wonderful work. So in the chat box, I put the Justice Center, you know, Howie mm-hmm. the Harp, Baltic mm-hmm. Street, and the Hands Across Long Island for everyone. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, you know, yes, go ahead. No, I say when you call, just tell them that you are, a, you know, you want, that Laverne Miller recommended that you call. And hopefully you get in the top of the line. But uh, uh, I'm saying that jokingly, but Ellen is a, a colleague of mine, so I'm, she'll, I'm sure she'll treat you well. You know, and Steve <laughs> says something kind of, that kind of caught my eye. He says, uh, you know, he says, I didn't know they helped with ex-felons. Is, mm-hmm. Do you find it common for different agencies to work with ex-felons? Is it, or is it- I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, I think that's a wonderful question. And I think it really depends on where you're at. If you're in a major city, generally – there are organizations that de- are devoted to working with individuals with um, felony convictions and other serious uh, convictions. Generally, there is. And, and I would say in most places, even if you're in a small town, there probably is an organization that focuses on, quote-unquote, what we call reentry, that, you know, and when a f- person comes back into the community after an exper- after a period of incarceration in jail or prison, and it's really so. What you can do is, I often uh, many jurisdictions have what's called a reentry council or reentry group, where all the folks that are doing reentry programs um, come together, um, you know, and really talk about what they're doing, what their priorities are. So that would be a good place to start. And you are not an ex-felon. I, I think we have to speak it into truth. And I say that is, you're not an ex-felon. You are a qualified person who's looking for a job. As long as you think that you're an ex-felon, um, you know, you will, you know, it'll be difficult for you to excel. You'll wear, you know, all that on your sleeve. So don't ever characterize yourself as an ex-anything, whether it's a, a ex-felon or you're talking about, you know, I am a person with uh, bipolar disorder. We, don't, we, not, we can't let those things define who we are. Those are things that happen to us. Those are things that we've worked hard to overcome. It's part of our experience, and we've moved forward, and that's the most important thing to take. You're not an ex-fel. <laughs> um, changing gears again, uh, Theo asks, and this is a two-parter, what strengths are required to become a peer counselor, and what training is available? I think if you're really interested in working with justice-involved 
peers, in other words, people who have criminal justice histories. It's uh, I would um, call the Office of Consumer Affairs in your state, and all your states have Office of Consumer Affairs that really helps coordinate um, the trainings and everything else that's really done um, in the state, uh, you know, and, you know, you'll identify what training programs. There are some training programs that focus solely on training um, justice-involved justice peers to be peer specialists. For example, Pennsylvania has a wonderful forensic peer specialist training program. It's just, you know, it's one of the best in the country. Um, and, you know, so you get a state like Pennsylvania or New York or California or Maryland is doing a wonderful job where, you know, they, they, there are loads of training programs to train you to work with folks uh, with criminal justice histories. You have other programs that have more traditional, that are more traditional certified peer specialist training programs. Many of them have actually um, added an additional module around working with people with uh, criminal justice histories like Howie the Harp. And there's a range. Unfortunately, there are some states where you know the where the, there is not a lot of training around uh, working with justice-involved individuals and what their special needs are. And so, really, I would recommend if that training isn't available in your state, that you reach out to some of your brother and sisters in other states and really request information, resources. Um, if you go to the Star Center, um, that's the S. That's a um, Consumer uh, Consumers Supporter Technical Assistance Center from um, of the National Alliance of Me on Mental Illness. Uh, I worked on a three-part series about us. That's the title that really has some resources and other things that are really helpful around training programs. And David, it'd be helpful if you listed the the website of the of the um, Policy Research Associates. Because we have loads of resources that are there. Getting on it right now. About to yeah, we have in. loads of resources. And what I'm going to do is I will uh, – yeah, we, I did a three-part series that really focused on really the kinds of things you really know, need to know to be an effective peer specialist. But I will say that, other, you know, because there's a culture around working in jails and, you know, and working in the criminal justice settings, there are often restrictions that, you know – I'll give you an example – you know, folks that are working in jails um, often don't know that even giving a person a piece of gum is a violation of policy. It's you know, it's contraband. Well, training—if you got trained, you that would un you would understand that. Um, they're also in, in jails and prisons. Um, there are challenges. People, you know, for those of us us that have those kinds of experiences, folks are not accustomed to opening up to anybody because to open up means that you're vulnerable and that you can be taken advantage of. And so, you know, it may take you some time to engage folks. Well, if you go to a training that focuses on working working with individuals with criminal justice histories, they'll, they'll talk about that, and you'll learn skills. The most important thing that you'll learn, and this is key, is that the vast majority of our brothers and sisters coming out of the criminal justice system almost universally have experiences of trauma. So what that does is it... it um, it 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 helps you as the you know as a person who's gotten trained ultimately in a criminal justice setting to really have skills about to understand what trauma is how it may impact upon relationship building and really be to be able to incorporate those uh in a strength based way in in the work that you do um the national uh, national association of state mental health program directors um did a wonderful uh book on 
on, uh, although its focus is on women, but uh, it's, I've recommended it's used for anyone. It, talk, it, it really talks very eloquently and speaks to us uh, around trauma. And what does trauma-informed care mean to a, a peer? You know, mean, what, what, what is it we have to do? Um, Sherry Mead's work around um, intentional peer support talks to that. So I would say basically if you don't have training in closing in your community, there are all sorts that you can access to make sure that, um, you know, you have the information that you need. Sure. You know, it, it, during that answer, you mentioned on the Policy Research Associates, there's a three-part series mm-hmm. that you did. What, what's the title of that for anyone who wants to look for it? Um, It's Learning About Us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as well as something, I wrote an article that, you know, talks about reentry being part of the recovery process and that um, recovery must be the outcome of reentry because it's really not just about doing your time. It's not just about succeeding in probation or parole. It's about a life in the community. It's about all the things that everyone else enjoys and feels good about. Um, so, you know, those things are very important. Sure. Um, let's see. We're going to switch to another question here. Mm-hmm. And we'll go to Jackie from Utah. Um, who asks, many individuals with criminal justice histories do not want to have anything to do with the criminal justice system, again, because it re-traumatizes them. Mm -hmm. They particularly do not want to go into the jails. Have you dealt with these sorts of issues? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I've dealt with issues where the person who's working in the the jail as a peer specialist um, often may be working in the same court that he or she was convicted. I mean, as you know, the I, I would also I would say that everything is local, and you never know who you're going to run into that you had those experiences. I would say I really recommend the folks to be very careful about and, and deliberate about what kind of setting they are going that they are applying for a position for. Um, for example, if you know that um, your experience in jail or prison was a bad one, and that you kind of it's not something that you would want to revisit. That's entirely fine. Not everybody can work every place. There are multiple settings where peer specialists um, can work, and I'll forward that to David as well. Um, you can work in um, crisis stabilization units. Um, you can, um, you know, respite programs. Uh, you can be a co-responder um, to um, work with uh, the police when they respond to a 911 call. Um, you can also work in a medication-assisted treatment program where you're, you know, you're helping a person navigate through that whole piece of, you know, being on, um, you know, methadone or other medication-assisted treatment and really support them through that journey. So there are infinite amount of opportunities um, for folks to work, and it doesn't have to be someplace where you don't want to work. And I recommend to everyone, you know, be very, very mindful of it. It's a decision that can really impact on your future. And Steve mm-hmm. mentions that you know he was offered a job but backed out at the last minute due to fear. How do you mm-hmm. manage you know your own your own personal fears and stigma? Okay, first of all, you have to own it. And the the other thing is that's really important is not only owning it but having someone that way you can talk through it and that you can you know that you are impact that you feel empowered because the worst thing in the world is to feel that life is going to happen to you not that you're going to take you know have control over your life so i i'd say that that's really really very important the other thing thing is to really understand where that fear is coming from and to really identify it as a as a priority for your own personal and professional development often fear comes from a place um that we don't even know where it comes from i'll give you an example 
I've worked with, when I work with provider agencies or, or criminal justice settings, I always say, you know, people with criminal justice uh, histories have sustained enormous loss of family, social status in the community, a job. People grieve. And that grief process, unless people are able to deal with it, results in a lot of fear. It, it really does because you just, you know, you 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 just don't know where you fit in or what you can do, and so it's really and 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 you, as long as your heart is troubled, there's no medication, there's no activity, there's no anything that uh, you know can can do that. You've got to, um, what I say, you've got to heal yourself, and as part of that, and that part of that healing process will help you gain the confidence. The other thing is do an internship. You know, folks don't. When I ran. Howie the Harp Center. Everyone is not prepared to go to employment um, right away. So, you know, do an internship where you are able to adjust to work and, and know that you can do it and you can do it well and that you meet colleagues and that you go to lunch and that you, you do all those things. So I really recommend the folks, you know, if there's some ambivalence that you have or concerns, try, try an internship or volunteer somewhere. Uh, you know, all this uh, advocacy for yourself really kind of brings up the question, those who do have family in their lives or friends mm -hmm. who who want to help out, what is the best thing they, how can they be involved? Family? How can family be involved? I think it's really important for family to support an individual's um, desire to work uh, and to really be a cheerleader. Often families are concerned about, you know, whether, you know, uh, what work will do, particularly if you're stable and you're, you're doing well. And people think that employment is not part of the recovery process. Well, Larry Davidson, who's a psychiatrist with a history of, uh, you know, with a lived experience like all of us, says, nah, employment is recovery. That we know that mm -hmm. it, having some something to do, a life of purpose, getting out of poverty, um, having relationships, children, is really important. That's what we all want to do, notwithstanding the challenges that we have. So, you know, I think it's incumbent upon family to really support. But the flip side of it is many of us don't have families that are supportive or that we even necessarily want to be around. So I always say, you know, look at family as a, as a, as a, a range, you know, and that family is how you define it. You know, those people who unconditionally will support you and then really lean on them, um, you know, for the kinds of support that you need. The other thing is you may want family to work with you. For example, if you're a woman uh, or a male and you have a, a, a child and that child has to be picked up from um, daycare at 3 o'clock or half a day kindergarten and you need someone to pick up your son or daughter, I think, you know, it's really family can step in. Family can be an asset. So often I recommend, you know, sit down with your family and say, this is what I need from all of you in order to succeed. Um, and really be clear about what you need um, and, and move forward. You know, and if you're, and that doesn't have to be your family of origin. It can be your family, your community family, your church family, not, you know, church or your synagogue or your mosque family, people that really care about you and that you care yeah. about. Felipe says, in my case, church was the first step to get help, but God was the final step to get hope in. Yeah, spirituality is important, David. It's critical. Um, and we all know, um, and I think it's important to stress that people believe different things, but being having spirituality and really, you know, under, being a person that, you know, is able to draw upon that strength 
in times of distress or, you know, when things come at us that we're unprepared for um, is really important. So that's a thank you very much for that comment. Um, Cindy uh, from Illinois, she says, we have had several concerns expressed from individuals providing peer services when they were former consumers at the agency and that transition being difficult for both persons yeah. served and staff. Do you yeah. have any solutions to address this? I do. And I, I think, you know, and I, I want to put this out there. I'm not really a big fan over that because I think it's very difficult to make that transition around. And it's around um, being a, from being a consumer to provider in the same agency. And all the time it's not on – it's not our issue. It's the folks that um, we work with who know may know very intimate things about you, may have drawn, you know, uh, conclusions. But what – be that as it may, there are really important reasons why a program may want to hire someone that succeeds, that went to the program. You're a role model. You already have pre-existing relationships, and you may know, you know what the agency is about. What I recommend is requesting that your file, your personnel, your um, you know your your medical files, um, not be accessible, you know, at all to anyone other, you know, that they be off limits. Um, because you know, folks get curious and they go and look. So I think that's primary, and your 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 privacy is critical. And so you know, it's really important that agencies do everything they can to protect privacy. Um, the other thing that you can do is really, um, you know, have your supervisor really work with the other supervisors to really speak to staff about how important it is to maintain privacy. And sometimes the adjustment is a long time. But you know, um, it's 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 worth doing if you indeed you want to get back to the community that really helped you on your road to recovery, which is the way a lot of us feel. You know, for anyone listening, we have about ten minutes left. But David, can I just say one thing? I'm not really an endorser of someone working for an agency where they're currently receiving services, unless it's a large agency and there's a you know you don't have to work in the program that you went through. I mean, you know, I treat that a little differently than someone who used to be. Uh, quote unquote client, you know, yeah. and so you know you you want to look at it through kinds of different lenses. Christina from Florida, and this is a question with uh, some explanation. How do you get around a level two background check required by states and feds? In Florida, we have many justice involved peers who cannot mm -hmm. work with the public because they can't pass a background check. Mm -hmm. uh, there is an exemption process, but it is challenging and sometimes mm -hmm. triggering or traumatizing. And the decision seems to be arbitrary. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's something I've heard time and time again. And it really depends on the state where you live. It depends on whether your state has really gone through a reform process like New York, New Jersey, Maryland, Maine, um, you know, uh, California. You know, so it's really um, state specific. And I, I, you know, Florida typically, um, you know, their, uh, you know, their laws are a little bit different, let's say, than the states that I just mentioned. Um, you, 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 the process, you know, it, it, as an attorney, I, think you, I just want to explain this, that, you know, employers, agencies are given quite a bit of leeway in developing policies and practices that they feel remote, um, excuse me, that they promote, um, you know, the, the job, the goals. And one of the issues is that they're most concerned about peers working um, with what they call vulnerable populations um, when the peer has a criminal justice record. If you have an exemption process, I would really recommend 
identifying uh, a legal aid uh, society, the Bar Association, or consumer-run program, bringing people together to help folks um, in the meantime complete that um, exemption process. Um, because often you do need someone with some expertise, as David said earlier, to say the right words that, you know, the other thing is advocate, motivate, bring it to the issues. Speak to your state senator, your state, um, your um, local senators, your, you know, assembly, your local mayor. Bring it up to people's attention because often, and I'm going to quote, you know, and, uh, you know, kind of, uh, people don't, no one goes back and looks at laws until it impacts on them. So you have to remember that a lot of these policies, regulations, and practices came at a time when the where the public was punish people. You know, you do the crime, do the time. We have done a really markedly shift, and so often laws or regulations that are inconsistent with that shift never get changed because no one ever thinks to enact a law that changes it. So you can be a change agent. Advocate. Great. And, you know, I think that kind of transitions to the next question that Rachel uh, has shared with us. And Rachel writes, I'm an attorney that works at an organization that provides free legal services to low-income people with mental health conditions. And we are fortunate enough to have peers on staff. What is the best way to provide constructive criticism or feedback to peers we work with without re-traumatizing them or making them feel like their work isn't valued? Okay. This is an issue I've struggled with as a manager. Okay, I'm going to start backwards first. First of all, we're not like Humpty Dumpty eggshells where, you know, we're going to crack if we get constructive criticism. Um, and I see my colleague Jonathan Edwards on the line. And Jonathan and I have worked together over the years to really ensure that that whole supervision piece is really understood by the supervisor. And I know, Jonathan, if you're on the phone, if you want to chime in about your approach to supervision appears, what I will say is that supervision should be structured, but it's uh, binary where both, both you and the peer you're supervising talk about, you know, what's going on and, and, and really problem solve together because that's critical. I say, my, you know, I've learned that water seeks the lowest level. And people will always exceed it downward. So it's really important for you to set reasonable expectations, but also to give the person the tools, the resources, and support that they need in order to succeed, because often that doesn't happen. Um, and the other thing is really, and it's important not for you not to take on the role of being a therapist or a psychiatrist. Um, you know, it's important that we are able, that we don't, um, you know, that our employers or our supervisors don't become that, that, you know, once you're employed, that you do what everyone else does, in the, you know, in the community, that you get those services um, in your community um, where basically, um, you know, you're able to talk about what's going on without your employer knowing all the details. So in, in, in closing, um, I would ask the peer, peer very clearly is what does he or she feel that he or she needs for supervision? Um, and, and I always say supervision when you're when you're providing constructive criticism, it's critical to say something positive. You can say we all can say something positive about someone. So really, it's important to really um, to, to say something positive. That's my recommendation. And there are loads of resources, and I'll send them to David around um, peer supervision. I have some slides that um, Jonathan did specifically for peers, specifically for non-peers that are supervising peers. Thank you. 
And You're hopefully welcome. that's useful to you, uh, Rachel. Mm -hmm. You know, I'll close with one last question. And that question is, how do you deal with setbacks when doors are closed of you because of your background? Yeah, that's a hard one, you know, and I, I, I can relate it to my own personal experience. I was an attorney um, that practiced law. I was a prosecutor. And when I got sick and hospitalized, it was clear that um, that was not going to be my career path anymore, that, you know, the stressors and other kinds of things and some things that happened during the terms of my during my employment that it was not going to be an option. When you deal with, you know, when one door opens, closes another one, um, opens up. Setbacks are a part of life. Sometimes things happen having absolutely nothing to do with the fact that we are, that we may have a criminal justice history or that we um, have a substance abuse uh, history or a mental health history. It's important that for every setback that you, you step back and you look at kind of what you could maybe do differently um, in that process. But most importantly is really to, number one, the whole wellness piece, because we know when we get setbacks, it's like, you know, if you're like me, I start what I call stinking thinking. I'm nothing. I'm not worthy. But the other thing is to create, to live in your community. You know, there are things that can that can um, enrich your life, make you feel good about yourself, um, connect you with folks that can really provide support. That when those kinds of disappointments come, you're much able to better to handle it. Because think about your own experience and everyone on the phone. When did you most have the biggest challenge in handling a setback? That was when we were isolated, when we felt all alone. And so it's really important, you know. For example, Jonathan is a great colleague of mine, and often when I've had the, I've had experiences that um, have left me, you know, sad, disappointed, feeling like a failure. I pick up the phone and I call. Jonathan, and we talk, and he talks me through it. You know, you know, like the uh, the boxing, um, like the uh, corner man in a boxing ring. You know, you can do it, you can do it. And I think we have to do that for each other. <laughs> I don't know if that analogy was a good one, but we have to do it for each other. You know, and that's what I think I'll close on is that we're a wonderful community. Your criminal justice experience, nor your mental health or substance use history, does not define you. It doesn't. There are going to be times when you experience stigma and discrimination, but don't, I rec don't internalize that. It's not your problem. It's other folks' problems. But the most important thing is to really get, get involved politically um, in your communities, to be visible. We can't afford to be invisible, that people forget about us, you know, and don't think about things that impact on our lives, like poverty, um, access to mental health care or substance use treatment, access to... Um, you know, anything, all the things that we want that make us happy and feel fulfilled. So, you know, uh, if you've got things that are going on in your state or locality that you feel are discriminatory or really impact on uh, justice-involved folks, get together, a group, organize, strategize, and speak to power because that's important. Laverne, thank you for sharing your knowledge, experience, thoughts with us today. Um, that brings us to the end of this session of Ask Me Anything About Employment. Mm -hmm.